I'm such a horrible person. All right, folks, uh, last week uh, in Sunday worship, we had an introduction to this book, Mere Christianity, written 60-some years ago by C.S. or Jack Lewis. Um, If you were not here last week, you are not quite behind the curve yet. Okay, I'm going to do like a two-minute recap, and um, actually small groups and discussion groups um, are meeting after today's sermon to discuss last week's reading and message. Um, So this is where God has us for the next four weeks. Um, I will say it's a little bit of a challenge because when C.S. Lewis gave, um, wrote this book 60 years ago, he wrote it for an unbelieving audience in mind, and nowhere in the beginning does he reference the scriptures. And usually in Sunday morning, sermons are built on the scriptures. Okay? So we're cheating a little bit and doing both. So this guy, Jack Lewis... A few words about him. He was born and raised in Ireland. His picture's on the screen. He was educated in England. He was a veteran of World War I where he lost his two best friends. He became an avowed atheist. He became a professor at venerable Oxford University in England. And as a 32-year-old, his heart was won over by the love of God and his mind was won over by the reason of God He was a man who knew many countries, many worlds, and he was, Jack Lewis, obsessed with finding and pursuing the truth, the truth here in this life and the truth about the life to come. He was a man whose creative spirit was tapped by the British government during the darkest hours of World War II so that he could speak on the airwaves to encourage uh, the citizens of the UK. Those radio talks were later edited and compiled into this book, Mere Christianity, Mere, or Core, or Essential Christianity. I really like this picture of C.S. Lewis because I think you get a good sense of uh, several of his uh, dimensions of his personality. So he's a really smart guy. He's an Englishman. He's got a tweed suit, right? He's wearing a tie as he wore every single day when he taught at Oxford. He has a pipe, and he is wearing a bathrobe, a smoking jacket. I think it's a smoking jacket, but he has this really like childlike, almost playful look on his face. And if you take the really smart intellectual professor and the imaginative, playful, almost impish child, you have a pretty good sense of uh, the life that God gave this man, Jack Lewis. So it ended uh, in worship last week with this statement from the end of Mere Christianity, chapter 2. There are two really big ideas here that C.S. Lewis presents. He writes, these then are the two points I really wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that we ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. We understand that there's a moral law, right and wrong. It's written deep on our hearts. And then secondly, that even though we know this, we don't in fact behave that way. We go against our own conscience. We go against the sense of right and wrong all the time. And then this rather uh, forward and bold statement. We know the law of nature. We break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Is there any Bible quotations there? 
No, C.S. Lewis is building a rational case from observing life, observing human experience, observing the way human nature and our little hearts work. It was my hope last week, if you were here, that not only your brain was like, yeah, I think I buy those two ideas, there's right and wrong, and all people, you know, nobody's perfect, that you not only mentally acquiesce to those two ideas, but that you feel this somewhere deep in your spirit, the twist of the knife that you, as an individual, you know what's right and wrong, and yet we all, we all do some crazy messed up stuff. Today, we're going to add a third big idea on the platform of these first two ideas. So first, C.S. Lewis presents this idea, there's a moral law, law of nature. Usually when we talk about laws of nature, we're talking science, right? We're talking about how atoms and molecules behave together. Like you take a, a group of hydrogen, a group of oxygen, you put them in a room together, what happens? You get water. I was going to say, you all need to go back to like <laughs> high school. You get water and the leftover uh, oxygen molecules become O2, breathable oxygen. Okay? No matter where you go, that's how those atoms behave together. Speed of light, it's constant across the universe. The law of gravity. I'm going to take this book, nothing against Jack Lewis, but I'm going to drop it. What do you think is going to happen? Is anyone surprised? No. Because the law of gravity as a natural law, every time, if I put huge odds, if I gave you million to one odds that it was going to like hover here in the air, would you take it? No. It's, it did it again. That's how the laws of nature work. With one exception. The moral law. The law of human nature is the one that doesn't work that way. In all other cases, the laws of nature describe what objects ought to do and what they do. In the case of the law of human nature, it describes what human beings ought to do and what we sometimes do if we feel like it, if we're in a good mood, if we're generous. Right? Gravity, law of nature, every time. See a person struggling to cross a street in downtown Chicago and shuffle their feet over a little snowbank? Do I help them? The law of moral nature says, yeah, you always do unto others as you would do unto yourself. You should help. Yeah, might help, might not, might be busy. You hearing me on this? Why, why of all the laws in the universe do we as human beings get an option? over whether to follow it or not. It's the one exception to all the rules. The reason is that God wanted children and not robots. Okay? God wanted you with a free will and not an automatic slam dunk follow the moral law. Now, unfortunately, this freedom that God has given the human race, we we have parlayed into tremendous trouble, grief, sin, pain, sickness, and ultimately death. God didn't make any of those things. We have invited them in. 
you're not alone in this. I'm not alone in this. We as a human race, this is our life together. We know right and wrong, and yet we break it. Even the best, most spiritually heroic Christians, totally in the same boat. The Apostle Paul, maybe one of the most spiritually vigorous people ever in Romans chapter 7 and 8, writes about his struggle with right and wrong. I mean, this guy is a super Christian. Okay, like just about as high as you can set the spiritual bar. And here's what he says about his own life. Will you please read the parts in yellow? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate... For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Does this sound like a happy guy? It sounds like a frustrated guy. So even superficially, okay? Have you ever had it where you're like, I really need a good night's sleep. I'm going to get a great night's sleep tonight. And then you go to bed early and you don't let yourself get a good night's sleep. Know what I'm saying? You've not had this experience? Some of you have this experience every night. It's horrible. Some of us think, I'm really going to put good food in my mouth, just fruits and vegetables for like the next hundred years. <laughs> and then like 10 minutes later, we're on the gummy bears. <laughs> this is just superficial stuff, right? This is not the stuff that makes our heart bleed and that the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about, you know, being faithful, being committed, being honest, and even these deeper things can elude us like the good night's sleep that we want. I do not do the good I want to do, and the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then feel him here. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The law exists, and we keep breaking it. Now, in chapter 4 of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis asks this question. What does the existence of this moral law of the universe tell us about the nature of the universe itself? What does it tell us about reality? Remember, this is a guy whose mind is like doggedly focused on pursuing the truth. So, okay, if we acknowledge that the law exists, what does it tell us about life? Now, in asking this question, we are venturing into a branch of philosophy known as metaphysics. Right? Physics is gravity and electrons and molecules. Metaphysics is, well, here's a definition for you. Number one out of Webster's, a division of philosophy that is concerned with the fundamental nature of reality and being. Oh, this is deep and heady stuff. And if when you're reading this book, you're like, I need to reread that paragraph. You are not the only one. Okay? Here's a second definition of metaphysics, abstract theory or talk with no basis of in reality meaning hogwash, horse hockey. So we'll try to stick with definition number one and not definition number two. So C.S. Lewis is asking a metaphysical question. We have this experience of a universal law of right and wrong. What does it tell us about the universe? Okay, I'm going to now group all human beings into one of two groups. Those who like the Green Bay Packers. And those... No. <laughs> No, two groups. Folks who, when they look at the universe, just see the stuff of the universe. 
the material of the universe. All there is, is stuff. That's one group of people. Atheists would be in that group. Nihilists would be in that group. People are just hardcore scientists who like, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. They're in that group. The other group are what we'll call the religious folks. And they are willing to grant that behind the created universe and behind this moral law, there is a power. Now, it could be a something. It could be a someone. But in this group are... Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Zoroastrians and palm readers and Christians, just everybody who's just willing to say, yes, there's something behind life as we know it. So you got these two groups, probably sitting here on Sunday morning, you know, though we all have our doubts, most of us are probably, you know, all things being equal, inclined toward group number two. Now, in the branch of metaphysics, have to acknowledge that between these two perspectives, nobody has a corner on the truth that their way is the right way and that the other groups is the wrong way. There is nothing from a religious or spiritual perspective that we can say or hold or demonstrate that would convince everybody in the materialist group that there is someone or something behind the universe. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as an atheist. There'd be less watertight proof. Similarly, if you are a hardcore scientist, there is no physical demonstration. There is no experiment. There is no line of thinking which you can share with all the religious people that will convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing beyond the physical universe. So we have these two groups, and nobody can convince one another that their way is absolutely true. You still with me? It takes a leap of faith either way. And it takes a dogged pursuit of the truth either way to keep moving forward. So C.S. Lewis brushes up against this notion, um, which in philosophy is called uh, Pascal's Wager. Okay, I'm going to present this to you not as a way of convincing your unbelieving friends, but uh, hopefully as a way of motivating us. So Pascal also noticed there's these two groups. On the one side, there's the folks who have no belief in God, in a power, because they say there's just stuff, there's no God. On the other hand, there's this group, like us, we have belief because we think there is actually a God or a power behind stuff. Still with me? Now there's like a $1.3 billion Powerball thing this week. Anybody know about that? By the way, should you tithe if you win the... (laughs) There's a metaphysical question for you. Okay, so I want you to approach this like a wager or like a Powerball ticket, okay? Let's say that um, you're a person of belief, okay? I'm a person of belief. Let's say that when I die, it turns out I'm wrong. All there is is this life that I lived, my molecules decay in the grave, and that's all there ever was of Greg DeMay. If my life was a wager that God exists, how much did I lose by being wrong? How much better of a life could I have lived if I would have said, no, there actually is no God, there's no moral law, so I'll just do what I want to. You can like the Packers, you can drink more beer, you can just let yourself go crazy. (laughs) Sorry, Packer fan. (laughs) Right? How how much better... How... (laughs) 
How much better is that life than a life of belief? In fact, you could argue it's not any better because if you interview people of faith, their quality of life is actually better than... Anyway, so you're not losing that much if it turns out that you're wrong as a believing person. Now let's say you're a materialist. Hardcore physical world is all there is. Stuff, someday it's all going to go in a giant black hole, utter non-existence for everything someday. What if you die and you're wrong about that? And it turns out there actually is a God behind it all. And there actually is eternity. And there actually is spiritual and soul and unimagined life that goes on forever and ever. Amen. How much are you losing by making that wager? A lot more than 1.3 billion, friends. You are gambling with your belief that the eternal stakes aren't worth it. Now, this line of thinking has never convinced or coerced anyone into belief, I don't think. And that's why I'm not sharing it with you so that you can go to your unbelieving brother or neighbor and tell him, well, look, dude, you're like playing the worst Powerball ticket ever. (laughs) That's not the point. For those of us that do believe, here's the point. This notion that God has not just this, what we see, but has an eternity ahead for us, should motivate us and inspire us to pursue him and to pursue the truth and to pursue real life with everything we've got because the stakes are so high and we actually believe it. Either way, if you're a materialist or a religious person, it takes a leap of faith. Now, with this moral law, C.S. Lewis makes one more point. This is a little bit of a mind bender, okay? And his point is that when it comes to knowing the power behind everything, God has not just given us what we see and experience with our senses, He has also given us inside information. Because that's where the moral law is written. So here's an example. Maybe you know an architect. When an architect designs a building, the architect herself is not part of the building, right? Obviously. But the building reflects their personality, their preferences, maybe their history. And if you know that architect really well, you might be able to go in one of their buildings and sit in that environment and think, I recognize such and such architect in this building, even though they themselves are not there. You with me on this? Same thing is true for songwriting. Okay, a songwriter doesn't physically flesh and blood become part of the notes on the page or part of the lyrics or part of the audio recording. And yet, lots of people love Adele, right? Lots of people feel like they know this young English woman, Adele, because in the way she writes songs and delivers them, we hear the human experience. And our little human experience comes against what she put in that song, and we think... Oh, yeah, I think I recognize myself and I recognize her in this song. Still with me? That's what it's like with the moral law. The God of justice, the God of righteousness, the God of right and wrong, he is not an observable fact like your chair or your friend or the water, right? He's the architect. He's not part of the building. But yet, as we sit here in the building of the universe we can recognize the creativity 
and the heart of God in the law of right and wrong that he has written on all of our hearts. When we long for what's good, when we long for what's just, for what's fair, we are hearing God's heartbeat and recognizing it within ourselves. A little bit of inside information. Now, we are not yet close to coming to know the God who personally reveals himself in the Bible, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mere Christianity, this line of thinking has not got us anywhere near there yet. We have simply gotten to the place where we could say, you know, a rational thinking person who's really pursuing the truth, it would be really sensible at least to come to the conclusion that there is a power, a someone or something, a force, not to get too Star Wars-y on you. And as a little aside, C.S. Lewis, 50 years before Star Wars, goes into why the idea of a force, a life force like Star Wars, is complete lunacy. So it's a nice little extra in chapter 4 of Mere Christianity. Chapter 5, this is the final thought for the day of Mere Christianity, is titled with these words, We have cause to be uneasy. To be uneasy. Like, this is getting disappointing. Shouldn't this book be getting better? Chapter 5, and the result is we should feel uneasy. Yes, and here's why. To recap, we look out at the universe, and if we agree that there's a power behind it, we can conclude two things. That the person who made the universe must be an awesome artist because the universe is creative and beautiful. Nebulas, galaxies, the Alps, just discovered seaweed that tastes like bacon. I mean, there's awesome stuff about the world. The other thing we could conclude about the universe is that whoever made it must be cruel and terrible. Because there are things like black holes that just absorb and suck all surrounding matter into oblivion. And there are things like hurricanes and earthquakes and days so cold that if you put out a naked human being today, you won't survive an hour out there on your own. Like the world is rough. And if that's all we saw, we would think, man, who's ever behind this had a deep, mean streak. Fair enough. The other thing that we know is that we have this moral law inside of us. And now here's the million-dollar question based on what we see in the universe and this moral law. If there is a power, how can we know that this power is good? What if it's just random or willy-nilly? Or what if it's vindictive and evil? How can we know that it's good? And as religious people, we're inclined to think that it's good. But here's the thing. Even if the power behind everything is good... we're still in trouble. And this is the cause of our uneasiness. If the power that made everything is good, then this absolute goodness must be really disappointed in so much of what I do. If absolute goodness is behind the whole lot, it must hate. 
the sin and wickedness that is going on on planet Earth. You hear that? This is why we have cause to be uneasy. This power, God, I'll even call him now, God would be our only source of comfort, but he's also a supreme terror because he's so good and we are not so good. The one we need the most to make sense is the one we most want to hide from. He is our only possible rescuer and ally, and yet through our breaking of the law, we have made him our enemy. Here's how chapter 5 of Mere Christianity ends. It is after you have realized that, number one, there is a real moral law and a power behind that law, and that you have broken that law and put yourselves at odds with that power. These are the three ideas. It is only after this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity has something to say. So if you are willing to buy that, please come back for weeks three and four, because the news is going to get really great. If you don't buy this, the rest of this book, the rest of these sermons, a discussion with other people about this, it's going to be a total waste of your time. Okay? It's a platform. There's a moral law. We break it. And whatever power is behind that law, we have really deeply hurt and offended. This is why Christians, quite frankly, are having a harder and harder time dialoguing with secular culture in the Western world. We are producing more and more people who reject one, two, or three of these ideas. We are producing more and more people who are just, you know what? All that there is is the stuff of the world. And if that's true, we can't really go any farther about having a conversation about morality or righteousness or right or wrong, much less the God who's behind it all. But if you're willing to accept this much, We're going to get someplace really great in the next two weeks because the power that made it all is also the power that designs the way forward. Here's a hint of where we're going. Back to the Apostle Paul. Remember I read this line about his struggle? What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law, a different law, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the old law, the law of sin and death. If you look for the truth, we will get life and peace, and health, and joy, and happiness thrown in. If you're a materialist and just look for the most comfortable existence you can, you might get a really big TV, you might get a second house and some awesome furniture, but that's all you get. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> the stakes are high. So let us continue and push on toward the truth if you are willing Weeks three and four go deeper into seeing how God works out the most beautiful solution possible 
to our failure to keep the moral law. In a short word, Jesus is at the heart of mere Christianity. The Lord Jesus is at the heart of mere Christianity. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that all truth belongs to you. You have spelled out so much of what is true in your word, but you have also woven your nature and your truth into the fabric of the universe, that which we see with our eyes and touch with our hands, that which we know to be true about right and wrong in our consciences and in our hearts. And God, give us clear minds, but even more than that, give us eager hearts so that we can grasp and in the deepest way that our little minds and strength and hearts can so that we can apprehend the beauty of your truth which is in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, every week in worship, uh, we respond to the goodness of God uh, with our tithes and offerings. I'm going to invite the deacons forward in just a minute to receive those. God has been so generous with us, it is only fitting that we are wildly generous uh, with the time and talent and treasure that he's given us. The band is going to play a song this week called the C.S. Lewis Song. Uh, It's a fairly new composition by a young Australian woman named Brooke Fraser, really great songwriter. And in the lyrics of the song, you will hear um, many of the themes and the words coming directly out of the pages of Mere Christianity. So uh, enjoy.